Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Winter is here, and there is nothing better than staying in and lighting your favorite candle. But have you ever stopped to think about what ingredients are in a fragrance candle? The Fair Packaging and Labeling Act gives fragrance manufacturers a trade secret status so they legally do not have to share their ingredients with you. Synthetic fragrance can contain up to 3,000 different chemicals, some of which are endocrine disruptors and respiratory irritants. Some even contain chemicals that are known carcinogens. If you do not want to give up scented candles forever, I have a swap for you. Introducing Fontana Candle Company. I love Fontana Candle Company for their 100% natural and independently certified non-toxic candles, wax melts, and room sprays. They use only pure beeswax, coconut oil, and essential oils in their candles, and they put all of their ingredients right on the label. Fontana was the first candle to be certified non-toxic by Made Safe, and they now have over 100 products certified. This includes their natural bath soaks, bar soaps, wax melts, and room sprays too. I love that they have my favorite seasonal scents like spice latte, pure vanilla, and cinnamon orange clove. If you're more than ready for spring, you can try their wildflower citrus or lavender vanilla tangerine. Discover your favorite non-toxic scent by heading over to their website. Use code JIPODCAST at FontanaCandleCompany.com for 15% off your order. That's F-O-N-T-A-N-A CandleCompany.com and use code JIPODCAST. Jared St. Clair is an enthusiastic natural supplement expert and formulator. Jared has owned the family business Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful, Utah for nearly 30 years. Through one-on-one interaction with his clients at Vitality, along with countless hours of research, he has developed effective protocols for many of the most common health concerns, including digestive health, depression, anxiety, immune dysfunction, hormone balance, and even women's hair loss. Jared's desire to educate people outside of his own store led him to host his own talk radio show beginning in 2008 on the Utah Jazz Radio Network in Salt Lake City, Utah. Jared currently hosts Vitality Radio and the Vitality Radio podcast with episodes released twice a week. His show takes a close look at flaws found in the modern healthcare industry, government overreach in our health decisions, and discusses natural alternatives to pharmaceuticals and more. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today is a guest that we have had on two times already, but his shows are listened to by so many, and so many have loved his episodes that quite a few of you have asked for him to be back. And so Jared St. Clair is back on the show with us today. I'm super excited to talk to him about a lot of different things. So welcome to the show, Jared, and thank you for being here again. Thanks for having me again. I've loved it the first two times. I'm sure today will be no different. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. Like I said, we're going to talk all about supplements. I get so many followers who ask about all different supplements and, you know, if they're good or why they should take them or what they will help with. And so I'm excited to talk to you about these. But before we begin, will you tell my listeners or remind them a little bit about your background and who you are and what you do? 
Yeah, I can do it pretty briefly since a lot of people have already heard me. So basically, I grew up in a health food store. My store, Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful, Utah, has been around for 46 years. I've been around for 51 years. So most of my life, uh, I've hung out there. I've owned it for the last 30 years. So I've made that, you know, my life's work and passion. And so everything about educating on natural alternatives and approaches, trying to help people avoid pharmaceuticals and medical procedures and things like that through natural means is, is what I've done most of my life. Interestingly, you know, we're here on a podcast. I started a local radio show. I'm on the Utah Jazz Radio Network and have been there for 16 years. And when I started doing radio, what I realized is that if you don't spend a pretty good amount of time educating yourself for a specific topic, you can sound like you don't know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> and so I found in the 16 years of doing at least one show, now I do two shows a week, that my education level has deepened dramatically. And, and I, I now say that radio changed my life because now my biggest passion above everything else when it comes to you know my career is the education portion of it. And I love it because as I'm educating others, I'm getting educated myself. And mm -hmm. I love doing podcasts. It's absolutely a blast for me. So I'm, I'm so excited to be here. Well, thank you for being here. And I get that as I've been doing my podcasts over the last couple of years, I definitely have learned a lot due to the studying that you need to do in order to prep and things like that. So I agree. So let's just delve right in because like I said earlier, the show, <laughs> I want it to be about supplements and how they can help us and all the different health issues that a lot of us are dealing with out there. And like I said, I get every single day without fail, multiple people asking me questions about supplements and which ones they should take and why. So I know this episode is going to be so helpful for people. I can share it with them all the time. So I know you talk a lot about the vital five. So what does that mean or what are the vital five? Well, it's funny. Again, when you have a show like this, you know, my show is called Vitality Radio Podcast. And I talk about all kinds of different things, right? And But uh, largely, I have sort of become known as the supplement guy, the guy that helps people understand what to look for on the back of a label, what a supplement facts panel is, what it means, how to tell if you're getting good quality stuff or bad quality and all that kind of thing. And as such, the most common question I get, and by far the most common question I get really is, okay, but you talk about so many things like where do I start or how do I know what I need when it yeah. comes to supplements? So years ago, I really took that to heart and said, okay, how do I build something that is foundational, that's pretty universal, whether it's male or female, younger or older, you know, applying to sort of the general American public in terms of what they're missing as a general rule in their diet or what their lifestyle is contributing to uh, deficiencies in and that kind of thing. And that's how I came up with my vital five, which are magnesium, omega-3s, probiotics, digestive enzymes, and what I call a good multivitamin. And those five things certainly don't cover every base, but they cover most bases and they apply to most people. And I basically tell people, I think it's the five things you should at least consider when you're looking at what supplements you may want to add to your diet to try and fill the gaps. Love it. I love those five. So let's actually break this down and talk about these five and why they're important or what we should be looking for. So let's first start with magnesium. Why do you think people are so deficient in magnesium? Why do you think so many of us need this? 
Well, there's a few reasons, and they are very much, I guess, environmental in nature, one way or the other. One is the soil quality, as most of us know, and probably a lot of people listening to this podcast already know, isn't what it used to be. Our ancestors got a lot more from their food than we do, and we have to recognize as a mineral, magnesium comes from the soil, and it either is eaten you know, in plants by animals that we then eat or the plants that we eat are pulling it up out of the soil. But in American modern farming practices, primarily they're only adding back a few minerals to the soil uh, in the form of fertilizer and they're depleting all the rest of the minerals. And there's very much a lot of this mono crop culture going on where they grow corn on the same land year after year after year after year, and corn attracts certain minerals. And so that soil gets more and more depleted. And we know that our ancestors, there's a really fascinating study that was done on magnesium where they actually, it's what they call a meta-analysis. They took 41 different studies and pieced them together to try and figure out what magnesium deficiency really looked like and what role it played in health. And the authors of the study decided that after looking at these 41 studies, that magnesium deficiency may actually be the primary root cause of heart disease in America above cholesterol or any of the other things that we hear about. And what they said in the study that I thought was really fascinating is that about 100 years ago, the average American adult was getting about 600 milligrams of magnesium per day in their food. Wow. And now we're getting somewhere between 220 and 260. Mm -hmm. So we're 60%-ish, you know, less than what we used to get. And yet we also have this other environmental thing known as stress and the magnesium burn rate is accelerated when we're under stress. Our body, our central nervous system, our muscles use more magnesium to try and counterbalance stress. And the more stress we're under, the more magnesium we need, yet we're getting less. And then we don't sleep so great, many of us, and that contributes to magnesium loss as well. And then there's this other thing that a lot of people don't think about that I think needs to be talked about a lot more. We get a lot of calcium in our diet, most Americans, whether it's from dairy products or supplementation or my least favorite form of calcium of all is the kind that is fortified into our food. You know, they take a whole grain, they make it into a white flour, they pull out everything that once was, you know, health promoting in there and then they fortify it. And we end up with calcium that is almost impossible to absorb. Usually it's calcium phosphate or calcium uh, carbonate. And even if you're using a milk substitute, which I anticipate a lot of people in both of our audiences are using, Carlin, like mm -hmm. almond milk, right? So they want the almond milk to mimic cow's milk, except, you know, minus the dairy and lactose. And so then they put three or 400 milligrams of calcium carbonate in it so that they can say it has as much calcium as milk, but milk. the calcium that's in there is nearly impossible to absorb and process. And magnesium is a cofactor of calcium. And the more calcium we get in the absence of magnesium, the more magnesium depleted we become. And so it's just kind of this vicious cycle with all of these reasons why magnesium is just short in just about everybody. That's actually really interesting. I knew about the soil and I knew about stress. That's one of my major issues. I feel like when I mm -hmm. stress, I feel like I need more magnesium. And I knew about the calcium, but it didn't dawn on me about all the nut milks and plant-based milks that are out there. You are right. We are adding that calcium in and we can't absorb it very well. And so that's actually really interesting. Okay, so if someone's listening and they're thinking, well, dang, am I deficient in magnesium? How would I know? What are maybe some of the deficiency symptoms? 
Well, my first answer is if you're American and you're breathing, you're probably deficient in magnesium. <laughs> okay. So that, that's, that's the first thing. It's almost for sure based on the research we have. But in terms of deficiency symptoms, uh, there's a bunch of them. General restlessness, just not being able to calm down and relax. Inability to manage stress very uh, effectively. Uh, insomnia, it can be often a magnesium deficiency issue. And I always tell people with insomnia that magnesium isn't usually, in my opinion, the answer for insomnia for most people, but it's almost always part of the answer. And I noticed you've got a new nighttime formula that's uh, coming out and you use magnesium bisglycinate, which is my favorite form of magnesium. And it's a it's a no brainer as a nighttime supplement. So I always tell people when they're using my magnesium glycinate that you know, your optimal time to use it probably is at night before bed because it assists in sleep so much. Right. And then any kind of muscle cramping, restless legs, Charlie horses, constipation can be a magnesium deficiency issue. Uh, if you think about kind of what magnesium does in the musculoskeletal system, the most important thing to understand is it's the thing that allows the muscle to relax. Calcium creates muscle contraction. Magnesium creates muscle relaxation. If you feel tense, tight, stressed, Anything that feels tight is probably the right word, word or tense. Magnesium is probably deficient. And then another thing is heart rhythm is really important to remember. People that have things like AFib or uh, irregular heartbeats, POTS, those types of issues, in many cases, magnesium is a deficiency there as well. So interesting. Yeah, I know a lot of people are definitely deficient on it. I can tell if I don't take it at night, my sleep is not as good as if when I do take it. So I love taking yeah, it at, all the time. Yeah, I love taking it at night. But the form of magnesium, I think really matters. There's what, seven different forms of magnesium out there and they sort of do different things. So what type of magnesium do you like and why? So I'm a, the biggest fan of magnesium bisglycinate for one simple reason. In terms of actual assimilation rates, it has the best evidence that it absorbs the very best above all of them. It doesn't mean it's the only good form of magnesium. There's lots of good forms. Magnesium taurinate, for instance, where taurine has some really nice benefits for cardiovascular wellness. Some people will find, especially with heart uh, issues like I just discussed, that taurinate might work a little better because they, they're getting the magnesium benefit, but they're also getting the taurine benefit. You know, magnesium citrate is kind of a happy middle ground for some people because if you're constipated, magnesium citrate is actually less bioavailable than magnesium bisglycinate uh, as a general rule, but it also has an ionic action in the bowel, which can help you go to the bathroom. So you're still getting a decent dose of magnesium, not quite as good absorption as what you get with bisglycinate, but you get that secondary benefit. For people that are concerned about taking magnesium because it causes a laxative effect and they're not looking for that, magnesium bisglycinate is the one form of magnesium that doesn't really have an ionic reaction in the bowel. So it typically doesn't cause a laxative effect where most other magnesium, at least at a certain point, you'll get that laxative effect. But on the flip side of that, because most of them are going to give you a laxative effect, even at lower doses, Often you can't get the full amount of magnesium that you need unless you use a bisglycinate because you can handle more without the laxative effect and therefore fill your needs. Remembering that we're about 350-ish milligrams short per day based on what our ancestors have, but then we also have those stress factors and those environmental toxin factors and some of these other factors. Most of us probably need 300 to 400 milligrams minimum added to our diet. And most people can't get that much unless they're using a bisglycinate because they're not able to take enough without getting a laxative effect. 
You know, talking about these different forms, I was at the grocery store the other day and I was just curious to see all the different forms of magnesium they were selling, but 90% of them were just magnesium oxide. And so do you want to tell them about magnesium oxide <laughs> and maybe why it's not the best one to take if we're trying to supplement our levels of magnesium? Absolutely. When you talk about, you know, big box store magnesium, whether it's the pharmacy, the drugstore, the Costco, the, you know, whatever, all of these places are going to primarily have magnesium oxide. And there's really, I think, one major reason for it. It is the cheapest magnesium to produce. And so when you're looking at the consumer that's looking to get a deal on their supplements, generally speaking, they're going to a place like Costco or they're going to a place like, uh, you know, Walmart or whatever, looking for cheaper options. And unfortunately, in some cases, that can actually work out okay, because there are some nutrients uh, that are sold in health food stores that are also sold at Costco that are roughly the same as far as their general makeup. But when you have items like magnesium that have all these different forms, it's not the case. We have to remember that magnesium, again, is a mineral and it's literally mined the same way as gold or copper would be mined. And we are, as humans, are designed to get magnesium from our food, which is what would be known as an organic form of magnesium, as opposed to an inorganic form. Magnesium oxide is an inorganic form that has not been chelated or bonded to a food. Magnesium glycinate or bisglycinate specifically, which I, again, I think is the very best, is bonded twice to the amino acid glycine. And because the body recognizes glycine as protein, it pulls the magnesium in with the protein. But when we have a magnesium oxide, the average absorption is something like 4%. And if you need a laxative, it is one of the most effective laxatives there is, but it is a very ineffective magnesium. Which is a shame that that's what's sold, but that's why we have to become smart consumers of everything we eat and that includes supplements as well. So Absolutely. magnesium, like I said, I love it. It can help now over 800 different functions in the body. It used to be that the research was 400, then it moved up to 500. Now they're saying over 800 different functions in the body that it helps with. But people always ask me, is it okay for kids? And then they always want to know for breastfeeding and pregnant. So let's do all three. Can kids okay. take magnesium or is it good for them? So the most important thing to understand is that our kids are in the same environment we're in. So in terms of what they're eating, they're eating as depleted a food as we are. Their stress levels, I think, unfortunately, may be higher than any generation of kids that we've ever seen. They have uh, you know, screens in front of them constantly creating all kinds of different who knows what in their minds and creating stressors that way. So yeah, I think kids are in as high a need as adults are, but we have to just base that on body weight. If, you know, if you have a 50 pound child, he doesn't need what a 250 pound man needs. When I said three to 400 milligrams, it's a general dose for adults. You need to keep in mind what your stress level is, how organic your diet is, because if you're eating organically, you will get more magnesium in organic food than non-organically raised food. Uh, so a lot of that kind of stuff plays a role for sure. With kids, what I say is start with 400 milligrams as your quote unquote adult dose, and then go down from there. So if you've got a 50 pound child, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 milligrams is probably a pretty good dose. 
And if you have a hundred pound child somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 milligrams is probably a pretty good dose. If you've got children that can't swallow magnesium pills, there are some really great bisglycinate powders out on the market. My favorite that's just magnesium with nothing else in it is made by a company called Natural Factors. Of course, you've got your new nighttime one that I think is really cool. And then there's chewable magnesium that's available, but not very many chewable magnesium or glycinate. Those are a little tougher to find. And then you should also keep in mind that magnesium is a great topical. So magnesium oil, magnesium lotion, magnesium gels can work really well, especially for, you know, for really little kids or for people that uh, struggle with sleep. A lot of times rubbing that on the bottoms of the feet for kids or adults can be a really helpful way to take it as well. But I consider it safe across the board. It is a nutrient that everybody needs, including the baby that's in the womb needs magnesium. The mother needs magnesium. And I believe, and, and frankly, I haven't seen research on this, but it just simply makes sense that a woman who's about to deliver a baby, for one thing, that woman's under more stress physically than you know most any other time in her life, right? And the delivery process itself is as stressful a moment in a woman's life as maybe there could be, yep. uh, certainly at least physically, not to mention emotionally. And we're talking about contractions, right? With uh, delivery. And so the contraction, the relaxation, the contraction, the relaxation, magnesium will play a big role in that. I've got a grandbaby, my first one coming in like a week. Oh, uh, exciting. And, yeah. And so that girl is certainly on magnesium and I've got another one coming a month after that. So yeah, we're, we're definitely recommending it there and, and certainly for breastfeeding as well. Well, congrats on the new additions. That will be super Thank fun. You. I love magnesium and, you know, magnesium is great for a lot of health issues that you touched upon earlier, the insomnia, but also depression, anxiety, things yes. like that. And the next supplement I want to talk to you about is probably one of my favorites. I don't know. It might be magnesium and that's omega-3 because I love that it helps so much with depression and anxiety and inflammation and those things. But let's just talk about omega-3. Why do you love this one? Why do you think it's so important that you included it in your Vital Five? Well, so talking about anxiety and depression, which uh, you're right, I talked about stress, but not so much, you know, the more uh, extreme sides of stress with the anxiety, depression, mental health issues that people deal with. And whenever I think of those things, I think of three things. I think of magnesium, I think of omega-3, and I think of probiotics. They are all such massive keys when it comes to stress, anxiety, depression, any type of mental health concerns, ADD, ADHD, bipolar disorder, PTSD. I mean, these are all things that these all play a role in. Omega-3 is um, a little different than magnesium in terms of the sourcing. Typically, we would get it from fish. That's going to be the primary source. There are some seeds like chia seeds and flax seeds and hemp seeds and things like that that can uh, donate some omega-3 as well. But the most concentrated source is fish. And we have two issues with fish in America. The first one being that, frankly, most people don't eat that much. The second one being that if they do, most of it's got mercury and arsenic and cadmium and a bunch of things that we don't want because the ocean is so polluted. So we have this real conundrum with omega-3. Wild Alaskan salmon is a phenomenal source of omega-3. And if you want to eat a couple of salmon fillets a week, you're probably going to get a pretty good dose of omega-3 from your food. But it's also, you know, $30 a pound or whatever it is. And so not most people aren't going to do that. And then in kids, most kids don't seem to love, love fish all that much. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to be one of those more adult acquired tastes for things. 
So we're typically just not eating enough. And then we go back to the same story with magnesium. Our stress levels are higher. Our need for reduction in inflammation is higher. And omega-3 plays a massive role in inflammation in the cardiovascular system and in the central nervous system and certainly in the brain as well. And then, as you mentioned, for mental health issues, about 70% of the gray matter in the brain is omega-3 fatty acids. So we're literally looking at brain food when we talk about omega-3. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so let's talk about inflammation because inflammation is a huge crisis in America. I've talked to doctors about inflammation. So many people are dealing with inflammation. They don't even know they're dealing with inflammation. And omega-3 is great to help with inflammation. But why is that? Well, it has to do with balance. Everything in health is balance. If you think about hormones, which I think is probably the one that's the most maybe obvious to people, you know, if your estrogen and progesterone in, uh, in a woman is, you know, way out of kilter, then you're going to have all kinds of extra symptoms, whether it's menopausal or PMS symptoms or things like that. There's also going to be the potential for a lot of mood swings and things like that. And balance is key. Well, omega-3 is a counterbalance to omega-6. And the American diet is loaded with omega-6 fatty acids. It's estimated, depending on which research paper you read, that an optimal ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 is probably about three parts omega-6 to one omega-3, or maybe four to one, but somewhere in that range of three to four to one. And the average American, it appears, is eating somewhere more like twice that much, seven or eight times as much omega-6 as omega-3. And then when you also add the fact that most of the omega-6 we're eating is oxidated trash omega-6 from seed oils that have been bleached and fried and all these different things, then we also have omega-6 oils that create even more inflammation than just a good clean form of omega-6 from say a raw nut or seed might provide. And so the ratio is key because omega-6, I said, talked about calcium and magnesium are kind of a yin and yang with muscle contraction and relaxation. With omega-6, they allow the body to inflame, which we need, right? We need inflammation, right. healthy inflammation. And then omega-3 allows the body to de-inflame and we need that. But most of us are taking part in activities or consuming uh, enough toxins, whether we're doing them intentionally or just air pollution or things like that, that our inflammation is higher than I think it's probably ever been. And our need for omega-3 then comes up even higher as that counterbalance. And, and so I always tell people that there's really two things you should consider when you're considering supplementing with omega-3. One is, well, there's three things, I guess. Dosage and quality matter a lot. And we can talk about that in a second, but also how am I going to get my ratio fixed, not just get enough omega-3? And the goal there in my book is reduce some of those seed oils, you know, using things that are healthier options like olive oil and coconut oil and, you know, even beef tallow and things like that, as opposed to corn oil and soybean oil and vegetable oil and all that stuff. And that alone will bring your ratio of omega-3 up, even if you don't supplement any omega-3. And then when you add omega-3 in, that matters. If people recognize that like grass-fed beef is much higher in omega-3 than conventional beef and omega-3 eggs, uh, eggs can be higher in omega-3 or lower in omega-3, depending on if they're fed organically. Uh, so there's a lot of little things you can tweak besides taking a supplement, but most of us, I believe, need a supplement to still bring it up to the optimal level. Yeah, you know, you're talking about most people's ratios like seven to one. 
I actually just read a study where a university did a big trial or a big research thing, and they claim that the average American's ratio now is 20 to 1. No good grief. Yeah, I you know. know. I wouldn't doubt that, but I'll, I'd love to see it. You'll have to send me that because when I look at diets, it's funny because I was just thinking about it, you know, before we got on the show and, and thinking about these ratios. And when I look at what the American diet looks like, when I have people come in and do nutritional consults with me and they kind of lay out what they eat, I'm looking at it and saying, there's like no omega-3 here and there's a lot mm -hmm. of omega-6. And so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. It's a pretty bad. And 85% of disease in America is inflammatory in nature. Yep. So we have to recognize that. And that really then means that omega-3 plays a role in just about every disease that we can imagine we could potentially have. Well, yeah. And even, I mean, autoimmune issues are just skyrocketing and a lot of those are due to inflammation. And I was asking my friends the other day if they liked fish or how often they feed their kids fish. And all of them were like, never, we hate fish. We don't ever feed yeah. them. And so I was like, wow, then all those kids, you know, probably don't have enough omega threes as well. So it is tricky because we've got so many omega sixes in all our fast food and People are cooking with it and things like that. And we're not getting enough of those omega-3s. So thank you for explaining all of that. But let's talk yep. about it for brain health because it is amazing for brain health. And why is that? Well, again, it's anti-inflammatory. And I believe this, if you're talking about a brain health thing and specifically mental health stuff like anxiety and depression and that kind of thing, I think it's fairly safe to assume that you've got inflammation in the central nervous system and in the brain. So if that's the case and omega-3 reduces inflammation, then that alone is a pretty big, powerful benefit of omega-3. But then when you take on top of that, what I mentioned before with the gray matter in the brain being made up largely of omega-3 and how critical omega-3 is to the integrity of the actual cell wall, meaning that like brain cells, neurons that are going to be talking to each other, delivering uh, neurotransmitters back and forth, omega-3 plays a role in that. And so everything that you can just about think about that has to do with the brain and the central nervous system can be balanced, more calmed, more relaxed in the presence of omega-3 versus if our body's uh, starving for it. Yeah. One thing I want to add into that I think is so important, omega-3s are needed though to help produce hormones. And some types of depression can be due to hormonal imbalances. And so I know I had a friend who was dealing with hormonal issues and she went and got blood work done and stuff and her omega-3s were like zero, like nothing. She needed yeah. so many more omega-3s in her diet and that helped balance her hormones, which helped with her depression. So it can play a role there yeah, too. That's, a, that's an awesome point. And the truth is, I mean, on my podcast, I've done probably four or five shows on each one of these topics, you know, these individual nutrients. There's so much to say. But, you know, you when you said that, it reminded me of something else that's really critical. When we look at dosing for omega-3, the range is, is very wide in terms of the research. And if you think about research for supplements, there may not be a supplement that has more research papers done on it than omega-3. I mean, there are thousands of studies that have been done in humans. And when you look at what's been proven to be effective for some of the more uh, kind of basic inflammatory things like, uh, you know, joint pain, arthritis, that sort of thing, cardiovascular wellness, they're somewhere in the neighborhood of 1800 milligrams of omega-3 supplemented per day, maybe up to two or 3000 milligrams. But when you look at mental health stuff, the best results are actually starting at more like three or 4000 milligrams and up to five or 6000 milligrams per day when they're talking about people with significant 
uh, mental health issues that would be, you know, under the care of, you know, a psychiatrist or, uh, you know, on, you know, pharmaceuticals for those things. In many cases, they found that omega-3 as an adjunct therapy at high doses is extremely helpful and in, in many cases more effective than uh, pharmaceuticals that they found for these issues. Oh, so interesting. I'm so glad you shared that. Okay, so Jared, I have a question though, because I get this question all the time. Everybody wants to know, yeah, but is this omega-3 a good quality? Because it comes from fish, I'm concerned about you know, the mercury levels, or I'm concerned it's not a good quality one. Like, how do we find a good omega-3? So that is a bit of a tough one compared to some supplements. Uh, some are a little easier to gauge than others, but I will say what I what I do, um, and this might gross some people out, but I literally will pop a capsule in my mouth, one of those soft gels, and pop it open. And if it tastes mildly fishy, it doesn't have any rancidness or nasty kind of aftertaste to it. It just has this little mild fish taste. That's actually one really good way to tell if you've got a good fish oil. And it's really interesting. Uh, for years, I've had people ask me that question. They bring in their bottle of fish oil. They got it, you know, Costco or wherever they got it. And I'll, I'll say, do you mind if I take one? And they no. And I open it up and I pop it in my mouth and they're like, what are you doing? And I bite on it and I can tell them uh, right away from taste if it is or it isn't. And interestingly enough, I'll have people bring in the same brand as you know, somebody else brought in a couple of months ago, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't, which mm. even makes it more confusing. So there's a few things to understand about omega-3 if you're looking at like supplement labels and trying to figure out, okay, what's good, what isn't good. One is we do have a relatively strict standard in America that the FDA has put forth on what can and can't be an omega-3 and at what levels. Pretty much across the board, companies have to abide by that. So heavy metals, mercury and things like that are for the most part not in there except at you know really really trace amounts. But there are stricter standards that can be followed as well. Uh, European standards and Canadian standards are even higher. The best brands will actually follow that standard and they'll show that on their label and you can look at the different you know kind of certifications and things that they might offer as far as that goes. So that's another way that you can tell another kind of layer of protection but this is something I learned years ago that I think is really, really interesting. Fish are caught for a variety of reasons, you know, commercially, right? The biggest reason being as food, but actually the very biggest reason, not as food for humans. Fish are caught for the fish meal, what they call the fish meal, which they'll put into all kinds of different things, including pet foods and, and stuff like that. And they're in many cases, the primary source of the fish catching is the most important aspect of it. And most of your less expensive brands, cheaper brands, grocery store brands, kind of like what we just said about magnesium oxide, are going to opt for the cheapest source of omega-3 that they can get. And so they're going to get it as a secondary product, whereas fish meal was the primary product, fish oil would be the secondary product. That matters because how the oil is actually harvested, how long the oil sits unrefrigerated or frozen matters a lot because that's what contributes to the rancidity of the oil. And a rancid oil is actually, even if it's omega-3, is more inflammatory than anti-inflammatory. And so this is one where the brand itself actually matters. And I'm gonna have some bias here, Carlin. I own a health food store. I really believe omega-3 should be bought in health food stores. Doesn't have to be mine, but most of the brands that are selling into the health food channel are selling a much higher quality 
first option is fish oil. Secondary option is whatever they're going to use the rest of the fish for. And in that, you end up with a cleaner, less likely to be rancid, you know, type of a fish oil product. So that's the best answer I know how to give. It's not perfect, but hopefully that helps. Well, no, that's really good. So good to know all of that info. So do I dare ask you if there's a few brands that you like? Yeah, absolutely. So I do have uh, another bias there. I have my own brand uh, that's in my Vital 5 line. So I have five uh, supplements that are, you know, cover this group of supplements we're talking about. Mine is an omega-3 that is what's known as Icelandic omega-3. Icelandic omega-3 actually does follow the European standard. Uh, and then we also have astaxanthin and coenzyme Q10 in there for eye health, brain health, heart health, things like that. Uh, my next favorite brand is actually Natural Factors. They're actually a Canadian company. So they have to follow the Canadian standard. And they have also what they call an Isura standard. And Isura is a third-party company that tests for 800 different toxins in supplements. And they can't pass the test if any of the 800 are found present. And so that is my other go-to. And I love that one too, because the concentration's so high. Nordic Naturals is probably the most well-known brand out there. Uh, they're the biggest brand in health food stores, and they make great stuff but they are a little more on the spendy side. I don't think you necessarily have to spend up for that, but they make good stuff. So no problems there as far as quality. The potency versus the price is one of the biggest challenges for consumers when they're looking at omega-3. And this is a really important thing too. Remember when you're looking at your, at your label, it's going to tell you how much fish oil is in the product. And it's also going to tell you how much omega-3 is in the product. And generally speaking, omega-3 is going to be listed as uh, three things, EPA, DHA, and maybe DPA. But at least EPA and DHA are listed there. The better brands are really spelling it out. They're saying there's this much fish oil, this much omega-3, and it's right there, sometimes even on the front of the bottle. But a typical fish oil is going to have a thousand milligrams of fish oil, of which 30% is omega-3. So you're getting 300 milligrams of omega-3 per capsule. If we go back to those potencies I was talking about, where it was 1,800 milligrams is kind of a minimum aim uh, based on the research and all the way up to maybe five or 6,000 milligrams, that means that your dose on a fish oil like that's going to be six pills a day at the minimum. If you're using it for mental health, it might be literally 20 pills a day or wow. more. And so you really want one that's high concentration. The, the one that I have, three capsules give you about 2,000 milligrams. The natural factors one that I love gives you 2,150 milligrams in just two capsules. And so now you're taking, you know, a reasonable dose to get an amount that's actually an effective amount. So interesting. That's really good to know all of that information. And I'm assuming, well, we know omega-3s are great for kids, pregnant women, breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Is there anything different though that you want to say about kids? Um, or is it like the magnesium where you just want to dose a little less? Yeah, you can kind of dose accordingly. And the same thing, depending on what your child's dealing with. If you're just saying, hey, I know my kid needs omega-3, then go with probably that lower end, you know, 1,800 to 2,000 is your adult dose, you know, drop it down from there. But if you've got a child who struggles with, uh, you know, ADD type stuff or mental health stuff or uh, has any other, you know, concerns as far as inflammatory things, cardiovascular things, that kind of thing, then you certainly can go up from there. Thank you for sharing all this information on magnesium and omega-3s. And I just want to say something really quickly on omega-3s. I hear people tell me this all the time that um, deal with anxiety. They'll say, if I go like four, five, six days without omega-3s, my anxiety just comes flaring back. And so if you're mm -hmm. listening and you're dealing with anxiety and don't take omega-3s, 
maybe that's a good place to start to try to see if that will help you. But with that said, let's move on to another favorite supplement of mine. I love it so much that I just created my own probiotic drink, but the supplement is uh, probiotics. And so mm -hmm. let's talk about it. Why do people need to take probiotics? What's depleting us of probiotics? You're doing a great job of bringing out products to compete with mine. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I saw your probiotic and I looked at it and I thought, okay, let's see what Carlin really knows about probiotics here. And it's awesome. Uh, you totally knocked it out of the park. I think it's a great product. You know, from previous episodes, I'm a huge fan of spore forming probiotics. Uh, so we can talk about that in a minute. But in terms of what depletes us, the big, obvious, nasty one is antibiotics. Antibiotics take no prisoners. They kill good bacteria, bad bacteria, and you know everything in between. And we tend to have a really high dependency on antibiotics in this country for things that I frankly don't think usually require an antibiotic. You know, I think the first episode of, of your show that I did with you uh, way back on episode 61, if I remember correctly, was uh, we talked about colloidal silver and some of all, you know, the many benefits that it plays in as an alternative for some of these things. And we talked about D-mannose for uh, urinary tract infections. That's a, a simple sugar that actually works, you know, really, really well. And so there's a lot of alternatives that people can use, but Antibiotics, particularly in the first four years of life, are a real killer for the microbiome because the full human adult microbiome is formed about between the ages of birth and four years old. And so we have to recognize that if there was a child that had a lot of you know, ear infections as a child or strep uh, or whatever type of infections would then potentially be put on an antibiotic, if that happened one or two or three or four times between the birth and four years old, you've got a pretty depleted microbiome moving forward. Also, too many cesarean sections happening in America. About a third of births are under cesarean. That means that that child misses out on the bath of probiotics that comes through the birth canal, which is incredibly valuable to the baby. Breastfeeding plays a major role in building the microbiome. So if a child is not breastfed or breastfed for very long, then so that first four years and what happens from the time the child's born to the two, four years old is critical. But in us as adults, if we had a sinus infection and we resorted to an antibiotic to fight it, or again, urinary tract infection or an ear infection or strep throat or whatever, and we weren't able to knock it out on our own or didn't have the know-how to knock it out on our own and let our own body's defense do its thing, then we're depleting the microbiome. But then there's this little thing you may have heard of called glyphosate, which is, you know, Roundup, which we spray all over everything in this country, is a human antibiotic. Uh, and so even if you're doing your best to avoid antibiotics, you're still getting them. 70% of antibiotics that are manufactured in America are fed to animals that are then fed to us. And so we can get antibiotic residues from the meat that we eat. So there's this really wide range of potential microbiome killers that we are coming into contact with on a pretty regular basis, which technically is not a nutrient at all. It's not something that we should necessarily have to supplement because we're not deficient in it in the soil or any fact, thing like that. In fact, there's lots of great bacteria in the soil. We still have to supplement it in most cases because of all these factors. Yeah. So sad. It's crazy. I mean, we could do a whole show about the misuse of oh, yeah. antibiotics. And so um, we'll leave that for another show. But I know people will ask, because they always ask, well, how do I know if I'm deficient in probiotics? Or how do I know if I need probiotics? 
Are there symptoms? Yeah, and that's as wide a range as magnesium, probably, maybe even wider. There definitely are symptoms. The first place to look is the gut. If there's any type of imbalance in the gut, digestion, you know, and that can be heartburn, gassiness, bloating, over fullness after meals, indigestion, diarrhea, constipation, cramping. I mean, anything that has to do with the digestive system that seems askew, probably probiotics are playing a role in that or a lack thereof. There is also, though, mental health. I routinely take people who say I'm struggling with anxiety over to my probiotic, uh, which is a, a spore forming probiotic that has what are known as psychobiotics in it. Psychobiotics is a term that was coined by a couple of researchers years ago. They're still probiotics, but they're probiotics that we now have clinical evidence work in the brain specifically to assist with things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, ADD, and so on. And there are a lot of them, actually. There are human strain probiotics that can be used as psychobiotics, and there are spore strains that can be used as psychobiotics. But if you're dealing with chronic mental health issues, whatever you know disorder they want to potentially label you with, there's almost definitely a microbiome issue. Something that fascinated me, Carlin, is a study I read where it said that about 85% of women in America with MDD, major depressive disorder, also deal with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. And what's interesting is you really have to approach that from both angles. You've got to approach it from the mental health aspect down and from the gut aspect up because that vagus nerve that connects, that is the central nervous system connection between the brain and the gut is really, really important. We have five times as many brain cells in the gut as we do in the brain, which kind of blows people's minds. I always tell people, if you're looking up here for what's wrong with your head, you should probably actually look down here because it's probably starting in your gut, not in your brain. And when we approach you know, something like IBS and we don't address the things that you can do for mental health besides probiotics and things like that, we're not gonna get everywhere that we can get with IBS. And we, when we approach mental health issues without approaching the gut, good luck, because right. they are just so interconnected. You have to look at both sides. We could do a whole episode on the gut-brain connection as well. We certainly could. Yep. So um, let me ask you this, though, because I know people ask me this. What is a spore probiotic? Because you hear about spore probiotics quite often now, and oh, make sure it's a spore probiotic. So what is that exactly? Yeah, so spore probiotics are known as commensal strains. They're not uh, human in nature, meaning they aren't uh, native to the human gut. And so a lot of people think, well, I need human probiotics because I'm a human. And the truth is, that's exactly what you need is human probiotics. However, when human probiotics are removed from the digestive system, they are not particularly hardy uh, little guys. They are used to a very specific acid level, a very specific temperature, a very specific moisture level, oxygen levels. All of that plays a major role in the health and viability of a human probiotic that would normally reside in the gut. Spores, on the other hand, live in the environment. They're found in dirt and on plants and in sand. And they've actually found spores in prehistoric dinosaur bone digs and have been mm. able to activate a spore that they think is millions of years old. They are the most resilient little guys you could possibly imagine. You can heat them up to over 400 degrees and they don't die. Acid doesn't kill them. Moisture doesn't kill them. In fact, this is really fascinating to me. When we swallow a spore probiotic, which comes from the earth, which I personally believe we were meant to get 
on a regular basis, but just because we live here, uh, not necessarily, you know, supplementing them. It's just that we've done so many things that kind of make us need to supplement them now. But when we swallow a spore probiotic, whether it's on a piece of food or in the dust in the air or in a capsule, that little guy usually hangs out in the gut for like 30 to 45 days, depending on a variety of factors. It is what's known as a transient strain. It doesn't live there and it doesn't colonize there. It creates this incredible environment inside the intestinal tract that allows all of the human strains to do their best job at colonizing and procreating and doing what they're supposed to do on a regular basis. It's not the same as a prebiotic, although it kind of sounds like a prebiotic. It is actually creating an environment that is rich in lactic acid. Lactic acid feeds lactic flora. Lactic acid also isn't the best friend of pathogenic things like parasites and protozoas and mold and fungus and these types of things. And so spores actually release little things that are antipathogenic and they enhance the environment for the good bacteria. So they're kind of going after the bad guys and nourishing the good guys all at the same time in a very balanced way. And so instead of getting just a few human strains in that you might get in a human strain probiotic, you're nourishing all of the strains because our microbiomes are supposed to have something like one to 2000 at least different species in there at any given time. And it's different for all of us. And so you can't get that in a supplement. It's literally impossible. Uh, and spores just allow everything to grow at a more uniform rate. And because they have a near 100% survivability into the intestinal tract, they actually get and do what they're supposed to do. And then they just leave. And they are what they came in as. They just go in and do really good things for us and then leave. And we should say thank you on the way out. <laughs> you did such <laughs> a great job explaining that. I have been trying to explain spore probiotics on my Instagram page for the last little bit, trying to teach people about the spore probiotics and our drink that we made. And you did that amazingly well. I may just have to clip that and post it on my Instagram. <laughs> so thank you for explaining well, that. Okay. Absolutely. I appreciate it. So this is something that I've researched quite a bit. So I'm curious on your thoughts on this. Do you think that there is a certain time of day that we should take the probiotics? And do you think they need to be with food, without food? What are your thoughts on when we should use them? I think it depends on who the researcher is that makes the claim. I have not seen anything that absolutely unconditionally says a probiotic should be taken with food or not with food. The guy that I personally believe is the most brilliant of spore probiotic researchers is a guy named Kieran Krishnan. Mm -hmm. And Kieran Krishnan is an absolute just Genius. wow. Uh, yes. I, I could listen to him for the next 40 hours and I wouldn't get tired of a single word. Yep, he's incredible. Um, he's amazing. And most of what I regurgitate if, if somehow or another originated from him. But he, he told me actually in a personal uh, conversation we had once that he thinks it's probably a little better to take it with a meal, but probably not that big of a difference one way or the other based on the research that's out there. And, and that's specific to spores. Now, human strain probiotics, which for people that are wondering, well, how the heck do I even tell what I've got here? Lactobacillus or bifidobacteria are what you're going to see on the back of a label that would be a human strain probiotic. If it's going to be a spore, it's going to start with bacillus, but not lactobacillus. And so lactobacillus and bifido would be human. Those are often going to be in a fridge because they're not particularly uh, stable, uh, but not always. Sometimes they'll put them on the shelf as well. Um, that's going to be the human. The other one is, is going to be the spore. 
Spores are just so resilient that it doesn't matter that much when you take them, in my opinion. Right. Human strains a little bit different because a lower acid stomach might protect the human strains to some degree so they can sneak through and get into the intestinal tract. And a lower acid stomach would typically be a stomach that already has some food in it where the acid has been sort of used up. So a lot of people say do it like at the very end of a meal or a stomach that hasn't had food for a couple of hours and hasn't started kicking up acid to digest the food. I don't know which one's better, Carlin. I think that they both work okay, and that's the best answer I've got. Well, I agree with you 100%, and I actually tell my people that when you take it is not nearly as important as consistency. Just be consistent with it, and that's going to be more beneficial than any of that. And that's what I tell them, too, is spore probiotics can manage so much more the harsh environment and things like that that doesn't really matter as much when you take it. Okay, You still have two vital nutrients and we're sort of getting low on time here. So let's move on to digestive enzymes and we're going to have to do these two a little bit faster. So if it's okay with you, Carlin, let's do the vitamin first and then enzymes. Just because the last time I was on, I talked quite a bit about enzymes. And so maybe people can even jump back there and listen a little more. Great idea. Actually, we can link the other podcast episode as well. Okay. So let's move on to multivitamin then because... So many people want to know what a good one is. And I've heard a lot of conflicting stuff about multivitamins. So let's just start with, do we need one? Because you'll hear conflicting things out there. So what's your take? So I hesitated big time on putting a multivitamin in my Vital 5. When I was first coming up with this concept, I was like, do I really want to put a multivitamin in there? And there was a lot of reasons for that because there is a lot of conflicting kind of data out there. The reason I settled on it is this. I just simply think that most of us are deficient in enough things that if you're trying to get them all independently, it's not going to happen. You'll have 25 bottles on your counter. And so that was the probably the biggest tipping point. But then I originally said multivitamin and I changed it to a good multivitamin. And I I really do use that word as the most important factor in this because I have an episode of my show and I'll just tell you what it's called. It's it's called Centrum Sucks. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, (laughs) I'll go listen to that one. (laughs) That's the episode name. And it's not just about Centrum. But Centrum, which is brought to us by Pfizer, who we all know and love, is a it's such a poor excuse for a multivitamin, uh, along with most of your typical one a day multis that are found in you know big box stores. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. But the single biggest one is cost cutting. They're just trying to give you the mm-hmm. least expensive vitamin for your dollar. And in so doing, they're giving you nutrients that are darn near impossible to absorb or assimilate or do much with. So good multivitamin matters. And I will say this, I'll go back to what I said about omega-3s. I think you get good multivitamins primarily in health food store settings, not in grocery store settings. Now, there are some online companies that make great multivitamins as well. But as a general rule, you want to buy from a vitamin company as opposed to, well, certainly not a drug company like Pfizer or somebody like that. So then when you're looking at, at it, you're looking at what's the range of nutrients. So like my formula is called Ultimate Vitality Multi. And I have a whole story on my podcast about how I even came up with it because I never intended to make a multivitamin. I originally developed it for another company and long story short, it ended up being my formula. But my goal was to have a multivitamin that was experiential. I wanted people to actually be able to feel a difference when they take it. And I mm. recognize that The two things people complain about to me the very most are low energy, high stress. Mm -hmm. 
And so I thought, how can I ge generate a multivitamin that's going to cover all the bases that people need, but is also going to help them in these two areas? And that was the goal that I set out with. And it appears to have been successful because people absolutely tell me on a regular basis that it helps them with both those two things. But what you first have to recognize is back what we said about magnesium glycinate, the chelation factor is critical. If you're looking at minerals and they're not chelated minerals, then you're going to have a mineral that is virtually unusable by the human body. And that means that it's got to be something like magnesium glycinate or zinc citrate or chromium you know, picolinate or something like that. They're all specifically bonded to some sort of acid. Usually it's an amino acid, but it can be something like a citric acid or something like that as well, which then the body recognizes it as food and can pull into the body. So that's a number one is look at the minerals. If they're not chelated, it's not a good multivitamin. Um, number two would be, in my view, this is really, really important. Look at the B vitamin panel. You have vitamins B1, 2, 3, 5, and so on. Those, the ones that can be, because not all B vitamins need to be methylated, but the ones that can be should be, which would mean like with vitamin B1, you should probably be looking for benfotiamine or solbutiamine. Both are great sources. Vitamin B6, it's something called P5P. Vitamin B12, methylcobalamin, folic acid. This one's really important. It ought to be methylfolate, not folic acid. And that is because about 30 to 40% of us is the estimate have this genetic mutation uh, known as MTHFR. We can't methylate things. And so therefore those vitamins not only will not work for us if they're not methylated, but they can actually be essentially toxic to us, particularly mm -hmm. folic acid. And we go back to fortified foods. We talked about calcium and fortified foods, a lot of fortified rices and grains and things like that. So that's going to include cereals and crackers and bread and things like that are going to be fortified with non-methylated folic acid, which can actually then end up building up toxic levels in people and creating all kinds of things, including mental health issues. So we want to make sure that we've got those ones in the proper state. And then you're looking for natural versus synthetic. And we'd have to do a whole show on this, Carlin, but like vitamin D, we're looking for cold calciferol. It should be vitamin D3, not vitamin D2. And vitamin E needs to be D-alpha tocopherol, not D-L-alpha tocopherol. And this is where I dig into the weeds on my show is really trying to help people understand how to look at a supplement facts label and figure out what the heck they're looking at and why it matters. And is it good? Is it not? That kind of thing. Those are some of the key points, but I know we don't have the rest of the day. So that's a, probably as far as I should go as far as the different ingredients there. Yeah, multivitamins, I think, are one of the most confusing things on the market today because every company shouts out that theirs is great and it's going to help you. And I look at some of the labels and same, I'm like, oh my goodness, we should not be taking this. And we could talk <laughs> about that MTHFR gene for a whole episode too, because I actually yep. have it. I have double variant of it. And so okay. how we actually found out that our family had MTHFR was an incident with folic acid that would take me a whole show to tell the story about my mm -hmm. sister and what it was causing to my sister. Anyway, so we do have to be really careful with that folic acid. And so I know you mentioned a lot of things, but if someone is just going to buy a good multivitamin, I know you mentioned all those things previously, but are there like three top things you would have them look for? Probably the big three would be uh, chelated minerals, the methylated Bs, and, and the two biggies most important would be methylcobalamin and B12 and, and methylfolate and folic acid. And, and okay. it, it probably won't even say folic acid. It'll say methylfolate, but sometimes it'll still say folic acid on there. So as long as it's a methyl form, you're probably good. And then I guess maybe the third thing, honestly, would be potency. 
there are a lot of really weak multivitamins that just don't have enough of, of anything in there. And unfortunately, part of that is because our brilliant uh, FDA who regulates all of this stuff nearly a hundred years ago came up with something called the RDA, the recommended daily allowance for these things. And it's just woefully deficient almost across the board. A great example of that would be vitamin C, which the RDA just improved to 90 milligrams a few years ago. It was 60. But all of the research on vitamin C indicates that that's not enough to do anything other than keeping you from getting diseased. But right. in terms of really optimizing health, you need much, much more than that. The B vitamins get scary to people. People look at the B12 and it might have 500 micrograms in there, which maybe that doesn't sound like much, but maybe, but that's like thousands of times the RDA. And then people are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get toxic on it. Well, the RDA was designed to keep you from dying from deficiency. And there's a big difference. If you ever watch The Princess Bride, Carlin, you know the difference between mostly dead <laughs> and dead, right? And, and the RDA can keep you from dying, but it doesn't keep you in optimal health. So we really probably want to look at those three things the most. So really quick, a 30-second answer of do you like ones made from real food? Like, you know, you see a lot of these made from broccoli and spinach and different mm -hmm. things, or is it okay that it doesn't have real food ingredients in there? I'm, I'm torn on that. I, I looked at it when I made mine and I decided not to go with real food. And the reason for that was it's, it's kind of a quantity versus quality sort of a scenario. If you look at it, the idea of uh, throwing enough at the wall that some of it sticks to some degree, unfortunately, that is what supplementation is. You're throwing more at your body than it probably needs, knowing that your body's going to wash out a percentage of that. But when we talk about whole food, which I love whole food multivitamins and optimally our body was designed to use food. But there's such a small quantity of nutrition in whole food multivitamins in terms of just the milligrams of the nutrient that even if you absorb 100% of it, in some cases, you're not getting enough. So if you have something that has a much higher dose in it and you're absorbing, say, 20% of it, you may be getting three or four times as much as you are from the whole food, even though you're washing out 80% of the vitamin. That's sometimes a little hard for people to wrap their head around. But over the years, and this is mostly personal experience and anecdotal evidence from thousands of people I've worked with over the years, I tend to get better feedback on multivitamins that have a food base. They have whole food in them. So you have all those cofactors that help you absorb the vitamins and minerals that are in there are chelated. So that has those cofactors that are also in there, but are not 100% food. It's basically a hybrid whole food plus really, really good quality vitamins and minerals in my book went out. Thank you so much for sharing all of this information on the Phyto Five. So important, all of this information. Will you just tell people where they can find you? Absolutely. So uh, in Utah, uh, we have our brick and mortar store. It's been there 46 years. Uh, it's in Bountiful at 107 South 500 West. Online, it's vitalitynutrition.com. And then, of course, if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's uh, Vitality Nutrition Bountiful is where I put most of my content, uh, Vitality Nutrition Bountiful. But probably the best place to follow me is my podcast, Vitality Radio Podcast. I've actually had Cara Lynn on the show before uh, where she told her story, which I've got great feedback back on that episode, much like you, although I'm somewhat envious of some of your guests that I haven't had yet, but I get some amazing guests. I've got a doctor talking about the mitochondria coming on in two weeks that 
blew my mind. One of the best interviews I've ever done. So that's the best place to follow me is over on my podcast, which is available on all the podcast apps. Awesome. Yeah. You are a wealth of knowledge. Your guests are a wealth of knowledge. I've learned so much from you. And I know if you guys go follow him, listen to his podcast, you will learn so much. And Jared, you know that I always end my podcast with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. And so do you have something than the other answers you've given? I do. I think I started with curiosity and then I talked about laughter last time. And uh, those are two of my very favorites, but I'm going to go with forgiveness. Mm, uh, I forgiveness love that. is, I think it's what we ought to also maybe reframe a little bit as un- unconditional love. There is a difference between forgiveness and uh, letting people walk over us uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. So boundaries can matter but you hurt nobody but yourself in a state of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness we know clinically leads to depression and anxiety and mental health disorders. It does not help with your insomnia. It does not help with your peace of mind. It is such a critical component of life. I think it is absolutely near the very top. Forgive, move on, accept and love, and everybody is happier for it. I love that because without that forgiveness, there's a lot of trapped emotions in your body. And even those trapped emotions can cause a lot of health issues and a lot of health concerns. So thank you for sharing. another episode we could do. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you again for everything that you share out there to try to educate people. And thank you for taking the time to be here. I really appreciate it. Well, right back at you. You're doing incredible work. And I I love the people that have found me through you who are clearly learning so much from you. Just keep doing it. It's amazing. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. I love providing you with content to educate you and your families. To pay it forward, please subscribe to the show and leave a review. These help us reach more people looking for better help. If you found something useful or interesting, the greatest compliment you can give us is sharing the show with someone you know. Remember, wellness is a journey and you are never alone.